Oh dear. Hey guys, and welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, the show where we discuss everything there is to know about app development. I'm your host, Rob J, and in this episode, I chat with cybersecurity expert, John Helmus. We talk about getting into the cybersecurity industry, pen testing, red teaming, ways to protect your own network, the security of developer-friendly tools like Firebase, and much, much more. Now on to the show. This is pretty cool, man. I've never, I've used a different, um, podcasting software but i've never seen squadcast it's pretty cool man so far it's pretty good and i've had a bunch of guests where either i've dropped out or they've dropped out Mm -hmm. and it just continues recording so even if i don't hear what you're saying and i refresh my browser i still got the audio for later so that's that's always nice and you do all the editing yourself yeah 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 i I started off with zoom and zoom was like great but when you record on zoom it doesn't create the recording till the end and it was always really Mm -hmm. terrifying after the session's done (laughs) and you're just watching this progress thing like 10 percent, 12 percent, and in between then anything could happen and it's just there's no recording so (laughs) this this is the safer option for me (laughs) <laughs> i like it man i like it this isn't my first podcast and i mean you i'm sure you've you can google my name on youtube and i'm all over youtube so it's it's uh i'm, I'm pretty comfortable with speaking and also i mean I, i'm comfortable even with mistakes like it, it's it's kind of what makes it more human right as opposed to 100 percent. and i think especially now in the digital era where we're all like stuck in place it's it's nice to like see like oh people are screwing up too oh okay <laughs> Yeah, likewise, I agree. I remember the first few ones that I did and there'd be, there'd be times when I made a joke or someone made a joke and I'd edit out the laughter because I didn't think it was like professional. <laughs> and I got so many comments from people that it just sounds so weird. Like someone just makes a joke and it's just silence. So <laughs> you I just, uh, to be a bit more lenient with the editing. <laughs> you just put like crowds cheering over you or like, cr- <laughs> like Jerry Seinfeld laughter. Like, ah, ha, ha, I mean, I mean, that might the be the guitar. evolution where it goes to. Yeah. <laughs> We'll see, we'll see. So I think it was Gabriel that put me onto you and he was just like, the guy's super knowledgeable and he's awesome. And, you know, do you want to interview him? And I was like, yes. So that, that was a, a good start. But the thing that I'm interested in is when it comes to cybersecurity, I think it's different now. So you can fill me in. But, you know, if you rewind, like when I was in uni, which was probably, you know, 10 plus years ago, mm-hmm. cybersecurity was you were doing things that were illegal and probably you got caught and then you got hired. And that was kind of like the career progression into cybersecurity. It was the same as app development in the way that there wasn't a course you could take that would teach you how to do it. You learned how to do it because it was super early in the game. So how did you get into cybersecurity? And then on the side note from that, is there a path now, like a quote unquote professional path people can take, or is it still kind of figure it out for yourself? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I'll, I'll lead in with the, the how I got in and then format that or format that into a path. So how I got in is I, I didn't do a very traditional path. Um, I was a, a young adult, um, who had just gotten out of the military and I didn't do anything IT related in the military at all. I actually did like small boat operations and I was out running and gunning and doing crazy stuff all the time. And then when I got out of the military, I I had started a family. I realized that the career path that I was looking at at the time, which is actually uh, I was looking in law enforcement, I wanted to go be in law enforcement, would require a lot of late nights, a lot of late hours that would keep me away from home. And uh, half the reason I got out of the military is because I wanted to be at home with my with my family. I didn't like being gone for long periods of time. So I was lucky enough that at the time when I decided to make this transition, I was actually an armed security guard at a government contractor based out of Southern California. And I decided that I switched majors where I was going to, to school at the time. I switched over from criminal justice and switched over to a information systems degree with a focus in cybersecurity. So that's where it starts to pivot. So about a few months into my program, I started getting a really big knack for just computers in general. I'd had a background in computers before the military. Um, I have an, an associates in audio engineering, which is basically, you know, it's, it's very similar to the way how networking and information systems work. It's just you're transmitting audio instead of data. So I was able to illustrate at my, at the company I was working at my technical capabilities while they were very juvenile, they were still there and they actually had a position open in the SOC, 
where they had a position that was manned by a rotation of four different security guards where we actually performed uh, access control in the SOC. So we got to manage all the access control systems and a position became open and it was the one that was the eyesore. It was the third shift weekends, holidays, <laughs> the one that like nobody would want to take. And it was technically a hybrid IT job that didn't give you IT pay. That was the other eyesore. So you're making security guard money, working these terrible hours. But I saw it as, hey, that's going to be my way in. So I immediately said, hey, I would like to do this. So they gave me a technical screening, passed the technical screening, and got some on-the-job training for a couple weeks. And then I was thrown in the sock. So I was still technically a security guard. However, I didn't have to come in with my, my gun and badge anymore. I got to start coming in, you know, with a button-down t-shirt. <laughs> and, and from there, I stayed there for about, uh, six more months until I started working with recruiters, um, in the area. And they actually got me a job working as a, a network and firewall help desk specialist. I did a bunch of different things for this, uh, company based out of Southern California. So we're still in IT. All right. And I'm finishing up my, my bachelor's degree at, um, at school. And I stayed at this one company for about two years. And in that time, I finished up my bachelor's degree. I got a couple of certifications and really started to rely on my network outside of my job. So I started working with recruiters again because I realized I'd been in IT for about two and a half, three years and had the fundamental experience that I needed to get into cyber. I had the certs. I had the talk. Now I just needed to figure out a way to show someone like, hey, I'm at least feel that I'm worthy to, you know, get, get, be given a chance. And if I, and if the chance doesn't work out, you, you hire me and you don't like me. All right. Well, <laughs> then it doesn't work out. So I, um, I was actually going to get my master's degree and someone in my cohort was, uh, an information system security officer for the government because of the certifications I had and because of my previous experience in the military and having a secret clearance for the things that I was doing, I was actually able to use my network at, at my school where I was getting my master's degree and talk to this individual who is a information system security officer and go through a, uh, a formal, slightly informal hiring process uh, or interviewing process rather to get into cybersecurity. So I basically worked with him and his team and then f had to go and search this. The weird part is I had to go and search a contractor who would pick me up so that I could go work for him because they would have to take over my clearance. And uh, so it was about a three month process of like going to an interview. I feel like it was like every other week and, and talking to different people because it was a very, very large team. And yeah, I want to say it was about three months, man. And finally one day, a list of contractors that I, I had in my digital Rolodex, one of them called me and said, hey, we finally talked to such and such, talked to uh, the sponsors over there. We'd like to pick up your contract and offer you a position as a cybersecurity engineer for such and such team. And of course, like, you know, I mute the phone and I start cheering and I'm like, in the, <laughs> <laughs> I'm at my office and people are just looking at me <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, unmute the phone. I say, Oh yeah, that, that sounds great. So let, let's, you know, send me over the paperwork via email and let's, let's talk about this. And, uh, and then, yeah, about two days later, I, um, I talked to my boss at my current job and gave him my notice. He understood like, Hey, this was the next logical point in my path. And, and the rest is history, man. I, that's how essentially how I got into cybersecurity was utilizing my network and using my credentials has a has a way to give me rapport and make it known that hey like i know these things i just need to be given a chance that's a really interesting story yeah I, I, a couple of questions coming off the back of that which is firstly unless i misunderstood does that mean that the roles that you were getting or the last role that you got was more you don't have to dive into specifics but like government centered cybersecurity, or is it still commercial centered cybersecurity? Oh, no. Great question. 100% government. Yeah, I did. I was in government cyber for a while. Okay. So then my follow up to that, and based on the fact that I'm sure there's very little you can tell me is how <laughs> does how does that differ 
or does it differ from doing government to commercial? Because obviously you need like some of the stuff you're doing or all of the stuff, I have no idea, needs clearance. So mm. is it very much the same working structure, but just more strict on like access and stuff? Or is it totally different working on that versus commercial? It is totally different. Um, with the commercial industry, you are able to create, you know, internal policies and guidelines based off of standards, you know, that are, are that are put out every year. With the government, there's uh, something called authorization to operate. They call it an ATO package that it's essentially an accreditation package that you have to your 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 entity within the government, your network, whatever it is, has to abide by the standards set out by the government. And if you don't pass that, you're not authorized to operate, which then means, you know, with the government, you're typically um, supporting something that's mission critical, you know, for the government. So it's a lot more strict with the government. And I don't want to sound harsh, but a lot less creative where it's just you're told to do something and you have to you have to make it that way because these are the guidelines that are put out. And you know, that's just the way how it has to be done. All right. That's fair enough. Um, and then the other question that I wanted to ask is you said, so there was a technical task and I don't know if the one that you did is specifically cyber related, but I imagine you've done some cyber related kind of technical interview task stuff. So if you have, what does that look like? Because, you know, from a programmer's perspective, you get, you get all sorts, like you get the really terrible ones, which is, you know, can you program this thing that we're never going to ask you to do in real life and, you know, do it in ones and zeros mm -hmm. versus, you know, the, the more logical, like, can you prove to us that you can do the job we actually want you to do and build this thing that might actually slot into our infrastructure? So what does a technical cyber task look like? Uh, that, that's a good question. And, you know, you kept talking about coding stuff and I was thinking about how arbitrary it is that sometimes I get, I've done interviews where I get thrown into a coding task for a job that requires zero coding. <laughs> so you're, you know, you're talking about where they're asking you to do things that don't even apply to your job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it, dep it, it depends on the roles. So, I mean, I, at first I was working in do or well, and just has a security engineer and now I'm working more in adversarial assessments, pen testing, red teaming, things like that. So, you know, like for an introductory or an intro, yeah, an intro beginner security engineer position, some of the uh, interview questions that I've been asked or that I do ask in interviews is just really core fundamentals. Um, you know, like even if it's just about IT systems, like, hey, how does DNS work? What's the difference between encryption and encoding? Um, you know, how does HTTP headers work? How does, you know, just web traffic in general work? And really, you know, allow the interviewees to go as granular as they want, including, you know, if I'm being interviewed, because essentially those are open-ended questions. So you get to ask the question and then the interviewee gets to basically shine as much as they want on how much they know about the topic. So a lot more based on the actual job and that's that's the kind of stuff that I like. You get to see people's knowledge, right? It, and the fundamentals, man. It's it's those are the things that honestly are gonna gonna help out. And if you um if you know the fundamentals, you can teach someone the the, the way of how you do 100%. things in a company, yeah. right? And you can teach them your culture and the way how you do things. It's you got to understand that they understand the fundamentals and that they stay grounded. So that way you can build them and mold them into uh what it is that you need them to do. Hundred percent, I would agree. I feel like that applies across all kind of computer sciencey areas. Like the fundamentals is. Key and you can teach the rest exactly if only it was like that <laughs> yeah well it really it's if only the people that were hiring us understood how it actually works and they would get it but like I, I had i had one um recently that was it was for a project that i'm super overqualified to do and there was a three-stage interview process involving technical tasks and all this kind of stuff and I, I think i knocked it out in like an hour but me knowing i can do the task is fine but mm. if i was hiring somebody and i was on that working for that company i would be telling them like you've you've wasted three-stage interview interview to find out absolutely nothing about whether they can do the task that we want them to do mm -hmm. and yeah that kind of stuff just drives me crazy yeah it's old frameworks applied to new jobs that change every day, honestly. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like it's like the whole um round peg in a square square hole kind of thing. And you know, you get the peg to fit, it proves nothing. Right. Brute force, it apparently. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's it's a conundrum, man. It's uh you know, we always talk about how technology moves too fast and you don't think about the subject matter experts 
in technology also not being able to move as fast, such as like, you know, giving re- redundant or old interview questions that are obsolete or don't even apply to what you're doing now. Yeah, so true. So true. <laughs> so I, I'm really interested in kind of kind of what the day to day looks like, or maybe what does a project look like? kind of start to finish and i'm basing this on the idea that you know you get hired by a company to come in and say right you need to test our network or test our infrastructure or you know we've built this product and we want you to find vulnerabilities and i'm assuming that's how it works so if it's if i'm wrong then let me know Mm. but if that is how it works then kind of what does that process look like how do you approach things and and that kind of thing so I, I assume too, with the topic you're mentioning, are we talking about like red teaming, pen testing, things like We're that? We're going to get to that. So if, if your answer <laughs> involves those things, then we can dive in right now. Okay. Yeah. Cause it, it, when you're talking about scope of engagement, there's, it depends on the type of engagement you, you do. Um, cause pen testing and red teaming are often, you know, spoke, spoke of synonymously. However, uh, you know, just as we talked about, that's a, that's an old terminology that does not apply anymore. So, you know, with pen testing, um, say you're doing like third party, you're a third party client and you're working with a customer. Um, you know, from start to finish, it initially starts off with like a pre-engagement meeting or a couple pre-engagement meetings. And essentially those are to establish rapport between the client and the customer and to also get a value of the scope of whatever it is that's being targeted, right? So you need to understand like the pain points, the causes of concern, the points of concern, things that need to be focused on. Also understand if like there's anything that is related to um, compliance, such as like PCI, SOX, HIPAA, things like that, because especially in a, in a third party sense, a lot of times you get hired for an engagement to do a compliance based test because even in the commercial industry, they still have to fall within compliance. Otherwise, they can't generate revenue. Right. And, um, that's a big reason too why, you know, you were mentioning like cybersecurity. It used to be like, oh, you'd go hack companies and you, you know, you, you get a little jail time and then you get a job offer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now, you know, it's, it's so much more traditional and we're able to use those same techniques to actually allow companies to operate. And what I mean by that is that within a, within a pre-engagement meeting, you need to ensure that the client understands that like, Hey, if you don't pass this, you can't operate. Just like in the DOD, those are some things you want to look at. And then once, you know, all these pre-engagement meetings are out of the way, you have your ducks in a row, everybody's comfortable with everything. You typically want to have a buffer between uh, the start of the engagement. So the start of the engagement is where, you know, you actually have your engineers go hands on keyboard or get into the engagement. You want to have about a week of buffer where any additional questions can be asked. And also like, hey, we need access to this resource, this resource, this resource, because you would be surprised at how often people ask for things like a pen test or a security assessment on a something as simple has a cloud environment and then a day or two before the assessment they don't give you access to anything <laughs> so you want to make sure that all your ducks are in a row uh, before the assessment even begins then you know the engagement begins do the engagement and then something that's really good to do is to be inclusive rather than exclusive you see it a lot now where third parties will go in and they'll just, you know, hack the company, do all, pull out their entire bag of tricks. And then they'll say, okay, guys, here's everything you need to fix. Bye. During the engagement, you actually want to make sure that you provide impact and, and be inclusive. And the biggest way to do that is to actually give like, you know, maybe an update to your client every day. Um, I've even seen companies that provide a dashboard for um, for their clients so that they can see a pen test or a security assessment in real time. And what that means is say, you know, say you're my client and I'm, you're my customer and I'm your client. I'm pen testing an app that you built. And you said, hey, John, I need I need you to give me daily status up updates and everything. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm too busy to be like calling you all day to tell you what's going on. I can just, we can have a central management server where like I can log everything and you can just go in there and check everything in real time as it happens. So that's something, you know, that I'm seeing a lot now because the industry is, is understanding that like hacking is not this abstract thing. It's actually just more of a business process and a business capability. So you want to ensure that you have something in place like that. And then, you know, after you've hacked the company, you've done your security assessment, whatever it is that you're doing, you typically spend about a week um, after that, writing a formal report, depending on what you did, to ensure that it's written in a level or a way that the customer can understand. And you're 
you know, I see a lot of people that turn up short at this, this part because it's not just about writing. It's also about understanding the terminology and the language of your customer. And it's really where you have to understand your customer on a personal level. So you spend that week writing the report. And then typically sometime later in that week, this is the week after the engagement, you, you send out emails to your, uh, your customer saying, Hey, we'd like to schedule a meeting sometime in the next week or two to talk about this report, talk about what you need to fix and how to fix it. So then, you know, fast forward to that meeting actually occurring. You want to ensure that you, your team works with your customer in a simple, non-threatening way. And what I mean by that is not bringing, you know, it sounds silly, but honestly not shaming the customer for, you know, their shortcomings on the report because it's, you know, we're only, we're all humans. If we weren't humans and we were robots, then pen testers wouldn't have a job because the developers would be building everything perfectly. <laughs> um, so you spend that last, that little bit, you spend that time working with the customer saying, Hey, the, this is where you need to improve. Um, this is, you know, how on the edge you are out of compliance or in compliance. And you want to make sure that you work with them to say, Hey, this is how you fix it. Here are some resources that you, sources that you can use. And you can, you know, if you want to even add that additional service, I see a lot of third party companies do this or even internal teams. They say, Hey, just work with us. We'll help you through the remediation process and make sure that this gets fixed within a timeline that fits your needs. And that's that last point is the biggest way to keep or retain you know, customers. And you see a lot of, you know, third party companies that don't do that. They just go and say, here's your report. Here's the things you need to fix. We'll see you guys later. <laughs> so in a, in a long, long drawn out way, that's kind of how a, a security assessment, um, or an engagement happens. Um, now, of course, you fit different things based on the type of engagement that it is. Yeah, I, I have a better picture now, at least. But you mentioned at the start red teaming, and you mentioned on LinkedIn that one of the things that you know a lot about is red teaming. Mm-hmm. So can you, for the audience, give an overview? Firstly, let's start with what is red teaming, and then we can take it from there. Uh, so if you ask me what red teaming is, and then you go ask 10 other people what red teaming is, they're all going to give you a different answer. <laughs> so uh, because it's one of those terms that it has evolved over quite a bit of time. So in my mind, and this is the way how I look at how you can make effective red teaming and make it completely different from other adversarial engagements such as pen testing, because a lot of times red teaming is thought of as pen testing in a sense, but it couldn't be farther from the truth. So at a high level view, if I were to give you my five second elevator pitch, red teaming is used to challenge culture by abusing normal operations within a company. The job of red team is not to, or well, let me back up. People or the industry will typically think of red teaming as something where it's like you have a goal where you need to find a way into a system and exploit it and you know, do the whole shebang. That is very true. However, if you really get granular with it and do a little bit of research, you'll discover that that's not really red teaming. That is what we call goal-based pen testing, where you have flags that you have to get during a, a pen test. Red teaming is so much more than that. Red, you know, there's, there's a, there's a guy, his name is Ira, uh, Winkler, Winkler, Winkler. I, I highly recommend you check him out. Um, he does, uh, a bunch of different red team engagements where he employs people based on their capabilities to do different things in a red team. For example, say they need a, a physical security assessment during a red team and he wants to do the best of the best physical assessment. He actually has on payroll, he has Navy SEALs that go and breach physical security. But it doesn't just stop there, right? That's just like, that's checking like the, uh, the operations, like the, the physical operations security of a, of a company. You also say someone says, Hey, we want to ensure that there's no insider trading or that there's, uh, money laundering within our company. If you ask me, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a technical guy or we're both technical people. But if you say, Hey, we need you to go check documents and make sure that money laundering isn't occurring in, within our business. We're not going to know what that's going to be like, right? So what are you going to do on your payroll, on your red team payroll? You're going to have accountants and you're going to have accountants go and check and make sure that there's not things like that happening. So essentially what red teaming really is, is where we look for areas of abuse in the technical, operational and procedural positions or portions of a company. And it can be done in a sense where, yes, you do want to go see what you can hack from the outside and see how you can get inside. 
Absolutely, 100%. But notice, remember, I, I mentioned procedural, operational, and technical. That's only the technical portion. So for a red team, you essentially want to test and discover areas of abuse in all three of those points. And it all falls back on a red team engagement, an efficient and impactful red team engagement is used where you hire on a team of subject matter experts in various fields to test every point in your company, not just the technical things. You want to also ensure that everything is being checked because you don't know where there's areas of, for abuse. And you want, so you want to check those. You want to check where there's areas for improvement. You know, and especially with culture. I mean, it's no, um, like ghost that culture is like the big thing in any company. That's what separates company. You know, you could have a company that sells the same product as another company, but people will flock to a certain company because of that culture. And you want to make sure that, you know, you even check the bias of that culture and you can use, you know, various people to, to do that. But yeah, so in, in a, in a nutshell, uh, I could talk about this for, for days. <laughs> Red teaming is, it's really an area of where you look for abuse within a company, both at the technical, operational, and procedural level of the company. All right. So that makes sense to me. Well, my question would be, do clients come to you and say, we want you to red team something? Or do they come to you and say, you know, we want a pen test? And you're like, no, no, you need all of this. Basically, my question is, do people come to you and use that term? Or is it just they come to you and that's the industry term, I guess, is the question? Ah. Uh, that's a great question. I think I think yeah. that's what I'm after. Yeah, because in my head, I would never, I wouldn't even know to Google that. So, right. No, that makes sense. Um, no, and you know, uh, I work as an internal team team member now, but like in my consulting days, I've um, you know, experienced this a lot where someone will say, "Hey, we want a red team engagement," and they'll show the scope of everything, and I'll say, "Well, that's not actually a red team. That's more of a pen test." With a couple little different parameters here and there. And then also remember like what I just mentioned about what red teaming is. You really need to ensure that your company is mature at multiple different levels before you even have a red team assess it. Because as a red teamer, you want to make sure that you provide an impact for your, for your clients, right? And you don't want to just go in and red team just because you want to make a buck and get your name out there. You want to make sure that they're mature at the most, I guess, the highest peak that they can be possible with each, you know, that procedural, technical, and operational level. So when someone comes to me and, and says, oh, we would like a red team, um, I would always say, you know, well, what's the scope? And typically nine times out of 10, it's like, oh, this is actually a pen test. And then for that one, you know, that one person out of, out of 10, the 10%, I would say, well, you know, where are the, where are the levels of maturity within your business at these different levels? And then 9.9 .9 times out of 10, they wouldn't meet the criteria that would need it be needed to be done to have a red team. Because, you know, if you're not at the most mature level, that you need to be, that's something that you can take care of internally, right? Me as a red teamer, I can say, hey, like you can go search and scrummage the internet, find ways to help your teams to to build these processes. And then once you finally get to a point where you're like, all right, guys, we're kind of plateauing, that's when you need a red team. Most of the time, if not all the time, always diverts back to a pen test because a pen test can also be short. It can be very directive in the sense where it's like, oh, we just need to test this application or our website and see if what you can do from the outside in as opposed to a red team engagement. I mean, you know, I think it, uh, from my illustration, it makes it real, makes it known that a red team engagement is not going to take a week. It's going to take months. <laughs> okay. So, so you mentioned clients come to you and say, you know, can you test the web app or can you test this website, whatever on, on kind of a bit of a side tangent. So talking about websites, right? I don't know what the percentage of WordPress websites in the world is, but it's a big percentage of websites are built on WordPress. And all the time you see things like, um, you know, there's a vulnerability found in this plugin, this plugin, update WordPress, blah, blah, blah. And then for someone like me that doesn't want to pay for hosting, I don't have a WordPress website. It's just, I have a static website hosted on GitHub pages or Firebase hosting or something like that, right? But my question is specifically to a product like Firebase, because I, I know that you you know a lot about AWS pen testing, and I want to get to that. But before we get to that, like a bunch of people listening to this now are going to be, you know, everything's on the cheap. So you're using Firebase hosting, using something else. Basically, with one of these products, we manages everything for you. There's not a lot of configuration. There's not a lot I can do wrong. And in my head, if I'm building an app or I'm building a website or whatever, I'm just going to point it to Firebase. Or I want to point it to something similar because they give you SDK. There's nothing I can do wrong. And as far as I'm concerned, the onus is on 
the owner of that product to worry about security and I have no qualms that my data is going to be a problem or anything like that. So in terms of those kind of things, are there still things that developers could worry about or are there vulnerabilities that get exploited or is it a case of you can just roll one of these platforms and you're pretty safe? (laughs) That's a great question. And this, my answer is going to be deployment or product agnostic so not only directly related to Firebase, um, with any commercial product that you're using to deploy websites. And, and it, you know, you mentioned AWS pen testing. It actually kind of falls in line with the same as like just any third party product. You have to understand that when you're deploying anything on these services, you know, you're paying for the security in the service, right? So, you know, you mentioned WordPress, WordPress. I, when you were mentioning WordPress too, I'm thinking in the back of my head, like, oh no, we're about to go down the rabbit hole of WordPress. <laughs> I tried to avoid <laughs> that one. <laughs> um, and so with, with, with those products though, you know, it falls back on to remember I, a minute, a minute ago, I said, Hey, we're humans. We make mistakes. If we didn't, the security would not be a job, would not be a job title. So. With those products, they're only as secure as we make them, right? So, you know, we spin up something with Firebase or WordPress, and that's all good and gravy. And the service has the, you know, in their part of the, of the job description, so to speak, of the, of the service level agreement between you and them, they have to keep up with the security of their service. That is their job. But if you misconfigure something, that's your fault. And so those are the big things that, you know, if a common service such as Firebase or, or WordPress is being used, it's going to be a big target because, you know, a hundred people are using it. Okay. Well, that probably means at least one to two, three people probably misconfigured it, you know, such something such as like, you know, not updating plugins, right? Because a lot of those things, you don't do auto plugin updates or things like that because it might screw around with the way how you have your, uh, your website set up. The other thing is too is, you know, default passwords, easy passwords, not setting account lockouts. I can't tell you how many times I've test- tested WordPress in the, in the past and seen like, you know, not having account lockout and you could just brute force into an application. It's things like that. It's going, you know, nine times out of nine and a half, it's going to always result in it's our fault. It is our fault, right? And you can say like, I think WordPress is a great example because WordPress is constantly in, you know, not in the good news. They're, they're in the, the bad limelight, so to speak, the sour limelight. And it's because they keep having, you know, they keep getting exploited. However, it also falls back onto they're the common service. So you're going to have more hackers, well, malicious hackers in this sense, targeting it. And so with that, you have more heads trying to, to crack the egg. So the egg's going to be cracked more. However, WordPress also does a good job of, you know, bringing out updates and things like that. But then again, they do their job. It's still your job to update your WordPress sites, right? So it's, it's all, it's all about us, man. And it's, you know, we, you, you would think that a, a techie would be able to keep up with tech, but it's, it's not easy, man. No, it's hard. There's a, there's a lot going on. Like WordPress, I feel like is an easy one. Like just keep, keep on top of that because it's, it's, it's widely enough known by people that are not very techie that you need to keep them updates up to date because there's a reason why they're there. You, you say that, and I've had, uh, there's more specifically, and this is more, this is dabbing a little bit into my personal life, is, uh, this was before the whole COVID thing happened, and we were actually allowed to be, you know, humans and next to random people. I was at my daughter's dance class one day, and there was, I had a, a tech book in my hand that I was reading while she was dancing, and there was another dad next to me that says, hey, like, what are you reading? Yada, yada, yada. And he actually, it developed into this conversation where I found out that he was a business owner that sold marketing on the internet, but he used WordPress. And the moment he used WordPress, said WordPress, we started talking about like the security issues. And I was like, hey, you know, like, that's not a, the most, great service to use if you don't keep up to date. He's like, yeah, I know, but like, I'm just selling marketing services and, you know, we do the best that we can. And it's just a small, small boutique and everything. And I was like, yeah, but how many customers do you have? Yada, yada. And, and basically what I, what I'm getting at it and what I got out of that conversation is that people don't check their bias and they don't understand like, Hey, it's kind of like the, uh, you know, the thing of like, Oh, it's happening to everyone else. It'll never happen to me. And when, you know, if you take, 10 people and half of them think like that. That's 50% of the user base for that service. Scale that out and you got, you got some pretty lucrative targets there. Yeah. I think it also leans on that bias where 
if something does happen, the odds are, if you're not that clued up, you don't even know about it. So then it leans into your bias where it's like, well, it hasn't happened to me yet. Whereas for all you know, it has happened five times and you just have absolutely no idea. <laughs> yeah. And that's the other thing too, is half the time you don't even know uh, that it's happening to you. So I have a, a question that just popped into my head now, because I was thinking about this the other day. The cybersecurity stuff is is really interesting, right? And I've like I've worked at so many companies where I know that cybersecurity is not even on their horizon. And that could be because they're taking your advice and, you know, they're doing things themselves until they get to that point where they're like, right, we don't think there's anything more we can do. Let's bring someone in. Or mm. for the most part, it was probably more likely they were just like this guy where it's like, well, we're only small, we're only a startup, we only have X amount of users, nobody's really going to notice, so it's fine. But my question is, are there tools that companies can use or individuals can use? Like the first thing that comes to mind is like networks, right? So for example, on your home network, I was thinking this the other day, I do a bunch of stuff. I have no idea if my home network is secure. Like I know that there's a password on my Wi-Fi, Mm -hmm. but then I also know that I follow tutorials online where they're like, right, you need to open this port because you want a Plex server and you need to open this port because you want something else and from my perspective knowing nothing about cybersecurity, i even went to the point where i googled other products that I, I googled this question and it come up with like seven different products but me being a technical person i was like there's a good chance that every single one of these products is actually an exploit that they want you to install to pen test your network <laughs> so when it comes to stuff like that is there tools that are like industry widely known or just things that you know about that are easy to use that companies or people ever can use to try and secure just like simple things like your network and stuff like that it depends there's there's a there's a key word that uh that needs to be mentioned is monetary <laughs> it like money wise right so cheaply of course i mean but again, it all falls on the, on the, the user. Like, how knowledgeable are you? And you, you did say simple. And I, I honestly, I don't feel like, you know, simple is a, is a good way to put it. Maybe, like, maybe uh, not simple, <laughs> but let, let's go for the fact that somebody like me, right? You can tell me build an, an Android application and I can knock out whatever you want mm-hmm. in five days, but I don't know anything about cybersecurity, but I know how to open and cl- close ports on my router and I can play in the terminal a little bit and that kind of level. So maybe to you, that's probably still simple, but I feel like it's probably a little less simple than some people might think. Right. Yeah. Cause I always like to think about it. Like, you know, we, things that we think are simple or that you think is simple or I think is simple. If we ask the not the typical, cause you have to remember, and I think we, especially now because we're so endowed in technology we have to remember the typical person doesn't even know how to open up a terminal, right? It's simple things like that. So when you're saying like simple tools that you can just run, I honestly just think of like, how can you run, you know, how can you tell someone to install something simple like Malwarebytes on their computer and run that? And, you know, in a small business sense, you know, say it's a small startup of like 10 people and you want to make sure that things aren't, um, you know, going in and around your network, um, that shouldn't be. The simple thing is like always like, you know, having a computer with Wireshark that's just sniffing out packets. That's, that's a simple free solution. Uh, setting up a security onion server that's got snort and stuff on it that's sniffing out things throughout the network and you can do things like that. But at the same time, it also still falls on the the end user to review, you know, whatever those tools are picking up, right? They're not just gonna they're not gonna just send you alerts unless you configure them. But then again, that's also a skill set in itself where you have to, you know, understand how to script something to have it report to you. <laughs> and you know, in this day and age, companies understand that that's not a typical skill set that the typical person has, so they charge you extra for yeah. that part. <laughs> yeah. So and you know, with like uh, with Android apps and like phone apps, there's um. I can't say it's reputable because, you know, GitHub is GitHub. And I mean, I have it. We all have, you know, most techies have their own GitHub. However, you know, GitHub is, while it's great, you never know what somebody might be putting on there. I've, I've reviewed source code for tools. That I was like, oh, this sounds awesome. And then, you know, you look at it and you're like, I don't know if it should be writing to that file. <laughs> yeah, because you just assume it's open source, right? Why would somebody put something nefarious open source? But it's because nobody reads the code. It's It's on the internet. It has to be legit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's on the internet and it's free, so it's fun. <laughs> yeah, so so you know, I don't know, man. That's a it's an interesting question to answer, but at the same time, it, it, there's so many variables with that that um, you know, it just depends on the skill level. But you know, at the same time, a great way to fall back on that and say and, and answer it is saying that's why 
techies, you know, that's uh, not, not gloating about it, but that's why we get paid the big bucks once we have a certain skill set is because those fundamental portions, we don't understand how like difficult it is for the average person to, um, to learn those. There's a steep learning curve, even just with the fundamentals, which again falls back on the initial, uh, one of the first questions is that's why when you're doing interviews, the fundamental questions are the ones that should be asked because those are the, going to be the ones that highlight that that skill set. I, I kind of just realized in my head, it's basically like you asking me, hey, I want to build Facebook. What's the simplest way for me to build a Facebook app? And I'm like, well, you know, you just try and practice it for three years and you'll probably be able to do it. So, <laughs> Right. But on, on, on a side note, I also wanted to make sure that my Googling skills were up to scratch. And the reason I didn't find results is because there aren't any. And you, there's not just like, you know, a one word answer. Yeah, go use this tool. Right. That's good to know. So, so you mentioned like how you, you have to learn this stuff and there's a sleep, steep learning curve. And you mentioned on LinkedIn that you're pretty enthusiastic about teaching. And on, on YouTube, if you type in your name, it comes up with a bunch of different YouTube videos about um, how to get into cybersecurity and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I'm interested in one, what is it that you like about that and kind of what teaching do you do? And two, with the YouTube stuff, is that just fun stuff or is that like working towards some sort of side hustle or where does that play in? Yeah. So the first question, um, you know, I really, I don't know, uh, you know, being a hacker, um, you know, we, we're supposed to get like our high off of, uh, exploiting systems, getting reverse shells, connections, RCs, SQL injection, things like that. Right. You're supposed to get a big rush off of that. I get a big rush off of that. However, I have noticed that I also get a big rush, if not a bigger rush off of being able to be a pivotal point in someone's journey to getting into this field because I understood, I understand what it's like to be on the outside trying to get in and having that knowledge and that skill set and just trying to get past the gatekeepers and the R, the HR filters because there's a lot of good talent out there that just can't get a job because the, you know, as we discussed, the industry hasn't caught up with the way of how we should be interviewing these candidates. Right. And how we should be seeking out these candidates. And granted, you know, there are a lot of fake it till you make it out out there. And there's, you know, but that's not in my experience. That's the exception, not the rule. Um, so I really enjoy being able to take my experience, my journey, because, you know, it's not a it's not a traditional one. I didn't just go to university and get a degree and then be like, all right, I'm a computer science graduate. I'm, I'm ready to go work at a tech company. No, I I was a, a veteran and decided to make a career switch and found my niche and, and hit the ground running. And that's what I like to help illustrate to students because, like you said, this is a field that there's still not even a real traditional career path on how to get into it, right? With computer science, you want to be a programmer? Okay, go to university for four to five years, pick up a couple different languages, do an internship, boom, you can go work at a work as a programmer somewhere i I feel like computer science is also caught up to the point that you could go on youtube for a year and probably still get a job whereas whereas cybersecurity (laughs) is probably not the same oh man (laughs) yeah that's a totally different topic (laughs) that we could do a whole day of talking on that but with with cybersecurity, teaching students things like that i really just you know i enjoy being able to help create individual frameworks for for students or just individuals trying to get into the field because it, there is not a lack of job openings in this field. It's got a hundred percent job placement, hundred percent job placement, meaning there are more jobs than there are people. <laughs> it's just being able to get those people in front of a, a recruiter. And, you know, the other thing is too, this is the, with, with recruiting, with interviewing, there's also not like a traditional, like, like you said, like an interview e question list, right? So it can vary. So a lot of times I get asked by by students and individuals trying to get into the field, they're like, I don't even know what to study for this for this interview, right? There's books, books, hundreds of books written on like cracking the code for coding interviews, but nothing for uh, cybersecurity interviews. So I really get a big rush off of creating frameworks for for students using my experience to help illustrate a story of like, hey, even the non-traditional path is still a path that you can do. Is it easy? Absolutely not. But you'll also notice when you get into cyber that cyber is not, I don't know, it's, I think it's one of those things that a lot of people chase for the money and then they get, they get into it and they realize that, yeah, there's a lot of money in it, but you're working long hours. <laughs> so I like to, you know, just paint a story to, to students, give them a real sense of like what it actually is. 
and then help them achieve their goals to get into it, rather it be from a personal, educational, or just, you know, upskilling level kind of point of view where like, even like a security engineer, I can't tell you how many times I get asked by security engineers that are saying, hey, I want to get into red teaming and pen testing. How do I do that? And then I teach, I mean, I teach it at various universities and I teach various different styles of cybersecurity. I teach bachelor level courses, undergrad, um, just like fundamental security stuff all the way to teaching master level courses that focus in adversarial assessments and red teaming and anything in there in between. And uh, it's really interesting to see, you know, you can tell when students eyes light up because they're like, Oh, this is, you know, this is cool stuff. You see them like learning how to program a, a script or learning how to like do a hacking exercise or just, you know, even applying the fundamentals to, you know, the, the terminologies that they learn and then applying it, to something on the keyboard. That's awesome. How, how, on a practical level, how do you fit in teaching around your your job as well? <laughs> That's a question I get asked almost every other day. <laughs> uh, I don't sleep very much. Okay, all right, that explains it. I'm a very, uh, I'm trying to think of a good word to put it, uh, a high-driven person. So I'm very, very lucky that what I do does not feel like work to me. Can't promise that it's not going to feel like work to someone else, but I... You know, outside of my career, I also have a family and I have, I actually have a farm, a mini farm, uh, right outside of Seattle, Washington. And so I make sure that everything I do in throughout my day, rather it be in my personal life, such as with my family or my farm or in my career, it makes an impact on myself or someone else. Because, you know, I've, I've fought diverse or not diversity. I've fought, um, uh, I don't know. I've just fought, uh, I've fought an uphill battle, uh, uphill battle, battle. <laughs> and, uh, I've fought an uphill battle and I know struggle and I know what it's like to, you know, uh, just fight that and understand that life is too short. Right. And so with that being in mind, like I wake up every day around like 530, get my cup of coffee and I, um, I do my morning routine of where I meditate for about 10 to 20 minutes. And then I'm in, I'm in front of a computer, you know, talking to students, grading papers, doing homework. I'm also a PhD student doing stuff like that. And then around like 7.30, I stop. So I've done stuff for about, you know, two hours at that point. I have breakfast with my family, make sure that I, I have family time for about an hour. The kids start schoolwork, stuff like that. And then boom, I'm right back in front of a computer until about, I don't know, five, five o'clock spend the uh, evenings with my family and then do a little bit of cyber stuff, you know, at night, you know, before bed or my, my spouse, she's the real rock star is where she doesn't like complain that if I bring a computer into bed and allows me to do things like that, like is so she, she's awesome. So, um, it's just really, man, it's, it's eating, living and breathing, uh, cyber throughout the day. Plus, you know, family and just understanding that, you know, those are the, uh, those are the things that get me going. That's awesome. I, it definitely makes a huge difference when you like what you do, because it's it's the difference between wanting to finish work and wanting more work. So, <laughs> well, you also don't want to just have more work. You know, you don't want to have just you don't want to just do endless problem solving, right? No, you want to have a but you goal. want all the things that are attached to it as well. Whereas when it's like work that you don't enjoy, it's just like I want to clock in, I want to get paid, I want to go home, and I'm done. R- right? Yeah. No. And I, that that I totally understand. And. Uh, that's something I always advise to someone is that like, if you don't, if you don't like what you're doing, you should probably try something else unless, you know, you have a moral obligation to, you know, to stay in that job, you know, rather it be for the company or for your family, you know, where like, if you're, you basically need that money to feed your family, but you can still, I've always told myself that if you want something bad enough, you'll figure out a way to do it. And you know, time is of the essence and time is the biggest commodity that we got. So you just have to figure out a way to say, okay, am I gonna, I don't know, play video games for an hour? Am I gonna, you know, spend an hour actually upping my skill level and getting towards doing what I want to do? And it's, it's hard, man, because it's one of those things that you don't see an immediate return on investment and it can take years before you do. You know, it took me four or five years of grinding it out to actually get into pen testing and red teaming, but hindsight, I, do it all over again because it was 100% worth it. That's awesome. That's probably, I, I have so many questions, but that's probably a nice, <laughs> a nice place to wrap up. So the last thing for me is where can people find you online um, if they want to know more about cybersecurity or your YouTube videos, all that good stuff? Yeah. So for anyone listening, you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Moosey Moose. So it's M-O-O-S-1-E underscore Moose. 
Um, you can find me on LinkedIn at John Helmus. And then I also have, I have my own website too. I'm actually in the middle of, of revamping it. Um, but you can find me at moosey.com. So M O O S one E.com. I got a lot of stuff on there. Uh, you can also find my book. It's on Amazon right now. So feel free to go purchase that. That's based around AWS pen testing. And if you want to reach out, the easiest way to reach out to me is, is on LinkedIn. And I have very, very open DMs where, you know, I, I am busy, but I try to make sure that I spend a little bit of my day answering stuff in my LinkedIn inbox. So if you have a question or anything, please feel free to, um, to reach out to me. All right. Awesome. And then I lied. One more question. What, what's the deal with, <laughs> what's the deal with the moose? With the moose. Oh, um, good question. So I, uh, I, it started out where, uh, in the military, a lot of times, depending on what you do in the military, you might have a call sign. So my last name is Helmus. However, I had a, a boss who had a very, very thick Hispanic accent. Very, very thick. So it would actually come out El Moose instead of Helmus, because, you know, he couldn't pronounce the H. And it took a little bit, but then eventually he, like, called me over the radio one day, and he was like, he's like, El Moose, something, something, something. And I was like, did you, did somebody, or I didn't say it, somebody was like, did you just call John the Moose? <laughs> and then from there, my call sign turned into, uh, to Moose, because uh, it was actually Hummus before, because uh, of my last, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it was, so it turned into Moose, moose and then, uh, yeah, I, I prefer Moose. And, uh, and it just kind of evolved from there. Um, I call, I call one of my, my little ones. I call, I call her Moosey. I'll say, Oh, come here, little Moosey. And then before I knew it, somebody picked up on it and they're like, Oh, you should call yourself that. And yeah. So that's just basically the evolution of that. And I had to make it hacker esque. So I had to put like something Numbers abstract something. in there. So yeah. yeah, I was like, I'll put a number in there. Make it seem kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. That's how you become a hacker, right? You just come up with a name and then you just change some letters <laughs> for symbols and you're good. <laughs> exactly. Big thanks to today's guest, John Helmus. You can find John on Twitter at Moosey underscore Moose, on LinkedIn at John Helmus, on his website, Moosey.com, and you can also find him talking about cybersecurity on YouTube. Just search John Helmus. Finally, if you like the show, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating or a review. You can do that either via Apple Podcasts or via Podchaser.com. The link is in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com slash donate. Caffeine is literally what fuels this podcast. If you'd like to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter at lowcarbrob. And if you'd like to connect with like-minded developers and other listeners, you can do so in our Slack community at coffeeencodingpod.com slash Slack. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee Encoding Podcast. <laughs>